Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of TVP. This week, we have friend of the pod, Joe Wiggins, back for his third appearance. He's been both a guest and a host, but this time we're going to highlight him as an author. Joe has just published his newest book, The Intelligent Fund Investor, Practical Steps for Better Results in Active and Passive Funds. On this episode, Juan and Andy Evans sat down with Joe to cover the case to invest in active management, what sort of things fund investors should be looking out for, why time is the greatest investor advantage, why a broad investment universe without restrictions is so important, and what alternative ways away from fund performance should fund investors be thinking about when picking a fund. Also, as a nod to the festive season, the TVP Christmas quiz is back on the blog. Should you answer the most questions correctly, you could find yourself a lucky winner of Joe's book. Check out the blog for more info. Enjoy. Joe Wiggins, welcome back to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's fantastic to have you here. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me again. So this will be your third appearance on the podcast. Thank you very much for coming back on the first uh, the first time we had you as a guest and the second time we had you as a uh, co-host. And this is going to be a very special episode because we're going to talk about something uh, very interesting for every one of us and our listeners. But before we do that or we go into that, can you provide us with a brief introduction about yourself for those that don't know you? Sure. So I'm Joe Wiggins. I'm Chief Investment Officer at Fundhouse, a UK-based investment consultant. Uh, And I also write an investment blog called behavioralinvestment.com. And I'm going to be publishing uh, a book called The Intelligent Fund Investor on the 29th of November. That's fantastic. For how long have you been writing the blog? Good question. I think it's probably four or five years. Well, that's that's a very long time. Yeah. Now, now the book's the reason that we're interested in chatting to you. Can you give us a, a kind of like two-minute synopsis of what the book's about and the main the main conclusion? Yeah. So the book is about it's about combining fund investing with our behaviour and the problems that arise because of the challenges of of how difficult fund investing is. And fund investing is a real decision making nightmare because you've got a huge amount of choice. Um, there's lots of noise involved. And we don't really know what the most important criteria is. So people tend to lean on past performance. But we know that's a terrible guide to uh, to future future outcomes. And through my writing, I realized that there really wasn't many books on fund investing, which was odd because most people who invest, invest through funds, but there's not much in the way of, of guidance about how to do it well or or how we tend to do it badly. So the, the aim of the book is is meant to guide people who invest in funds from 
people who do it privately to people who do it professionally about uh, the common mistakes we make, the good behaviours that we can enact to improve our chances of better outcomes and the behaviours that we should try and avoid if at all possible. So before the world went into talking a lot about climate change and ESG, which dominates the asset management debate at the moment, people were very much concerned about or discussing about passive investing versus active investing. And there was a concern for many active, for many people, many active managers. So why should anyone invest in an active manager? That's an interesting question. I, I think there's a, a bit of a misunderstanding about the success of, of passive relative to, to active investing. The success of pa passive investing through time in terms of the proportion of active managers who underperform and outperform is generally due to fees. So the compounding of higher fees through time is a very difficult hurdle to overcome. But there's another element in there as well, and that's the market environment. So the market environment can vary greatly in terms of the success of active management. There'll be times when the majority of companies within an index outperform and it's easier for a fund manager in terms of the probabilities to, to outperform. And there are times when it's really difficult to outperform because most stocks in the index underperform. We've seen this um, in, in stark contrast in the, in the UK and the US over the last decade or so, where the US market's been very difficult for active managers to under uh, to outperform. And lots of people have said, well, it's the most efficient market, which I think is, is nonsense really relative to other large developed markets. They're, they're no more efficient than than each other. But in the US, what we've seen is a large group of companies dominate those returns. So the largest mega cap of new consumer internet companies, so Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, um, dominate market returns, which meant that all of the market returns were dominated by those companies. So most companies in that index underperformed. So the odds of you picking stocks that outperformed were very, very low, irrespective if you were a skillful or fortunate fund manager, it was very difficult to, to outperform. In the UK, the reverse was true, where you had a, a market that was um, top-heavy in old economy stocks, um, so banks, resources, pharmaceutical stocks, which were laggards for a long period of time. So, so most of the UK market, the small companies, the, the medium-sized companies, outperformed. So if you were just randomly selecting stocks from the US market or the UK market, um, your chances of success over the last decade would have been much greater in the, in the UK um, and much lower in the US. So that market environment point is really important. And so I think it's important with passive investing not to conflate the idea that low fees are a good thing with the idea that market cap investing is, is always um, a great way to invest. I mean, that, that's pretty encouraging for an active manager to, to hear. But I think you do have some concerns about the structure of the asset management industry, you know, either incentives or, or the way it's set up. Can you, can you talk a bit about you know, what those concerns are and, and potentially ways that those could be alleviated? Yeah, there's undoubtedly an, an alignment problem in many cases between asset managers and, and their clients. And that often comes to pass in terms of time horizons, particularly with, with listed asset managers who tend to have a very short-term focus because they need to generate earnings numbers over the next quarter, over the next half year. So they're focused on, can we hit profit targets over the short term, which is really related to inflows and outflows. So minimizing outflows, maximizing inflows. So is a CEO of, a, of an asset manager that concerned? 
um, about a 20-year time horizon when they might be there for three or five years and their performance or share price performance might be assessed on a one, three or five-year horizon. Probably not. So there's a big mismatch between those those two things. And that's why we often see asset managers involved in behaviour, uh, not in a malicious way, but aligned with their incentives, which kind of encourages the worst types of behaviour in fund investors. So they promote staff our managers and they'll sack managers who are underperforming, even though we know all active managers will underperform for significant periods of time, even if they're skillful. They'll try and sell story funds or thematic funds. They won't close funds even when they become too big because it's like killing the, the goose that laid the golden egg. Um, so there's a really alignment problem where if we're investing for the next 20 or 30 years in an, in an equity fund, um, and that asset management company is thinking about incentives which are three years down the line or even a year down the line. Can, can I follow up? Um, I think star fund managers is another area which you, you talk about in the book. I mean, what, what do you see as a potential issue there for, for an asset manager house? Yeah, so obviously with staff fund manager, we always talk about and think about the, the individuals involved and probably think about them as, as unique cases of uh, of of hubris um, and idiosyncratic risks. But actually, I think there are common risks around staff fund managers that most investors would be best off avoiding. So the common traits are um, running too much money. So they just raise so many assets that their opportunity set shrinks. And asset managers can sometimes um, try and obfuscate around this or, or not talk about the problem of size. But clearly, when a fund size grows, the number of companies you can invest in um, reduces. You have more liquidity risk, less flexibility. So it, Fund managers who are successful end up often investing in things uh, in different areas of the market uh, to those which they were successful in. So that's a problem. They also have usually stellar performance as well because they've become a star fund manager with some with some heroic calls that have gone very well. Um, and as we know, past performance has a tendency to to mean revert, particularly if it's extremely strong. Uh, and that's usually coupled with with high valuations as well. So you've got a manager running. Too many assets often with high valuations and very strong performance, which which tends to be a bit of a recipe for disaster in terms of future outcomes, um, irrespective of who that, that individual is who generated those past returns. And the other softer factors, I think, are around hubris and, and power. And if you think about star fund managers, um, by virtue of them being a star, they tend to get asked their opinion on every topic under the sun, even if it's well outside of their circle of competence. So they can easily develop a, a, a troubling ego, which I don't think is a fantastic trait for, for a fund manager, given how difficult that job is. So that's a, that's a real concern. And also the power dynamic within asset managers is really difficult as well. If you think about a star fund manager, they'll generally be responsible for a very significant portion of a company's revenues. So they hold a huge amount of power. So the ability of someone in risk and compliance to say tap them on the shoulder and say, actually, I think you're investing in areas that you shouldn't be investing in that are outside of your, your circle of competence is often uh, compromised and not a great career move for that person in the, the risk or compliance department. So there are a range of troubling factors that just mean that there's no need for investors to invest in star fund managers. The, the range of funds available is too big anyway. Um, so there's no need to focus on those that have been incredibly successful in the past. Can I ask you about something that you cover in your book, but it's something that you have also covered on your blog. I actually don't think that we talked about how, what's what's the name of your blog. It's behavioralinvestment.com. Okay. Behavioral spelled in the English way as well. That's that's quite important. So you you have clearly studied all of human biases and behaviors. And in your role as evaluating fund managers and the investment process. Is it possible for you to protect yourself or armor yourself against 
being sucked into someone's narrative or the way that they are building their stories or storytelling, or you are aware of those biases, but you're still human and very difficult to to fight them. Yeah, unfortunately, being aware of them uh, doesn't provide great protection. I always say there's nothing more dangerous than a, a lucky and charismatic fund manager. And people are often beguiled by fund managers who can tell fantastic stories and have charismatic personalities. And I'm not sure there's a great correlation between charisma and uh, investment skill. But clearly that works very well in terms of presenting, in terms of telling the, the story about, about your fund. And I think with all these things, it's all about making sensible investment decisions about linking beliefs. So you have some, some kind of sensible beliefs about how investing works or the type of problem you're trying to, trying to solve. It's about having a process that you go through. Uh, and hopefully those things lead to, to good outcomes through time. So it's about building a process and trying to follow that process as, as carefully as possible. Is there, is there a downside to meeting certain fund managers face-to-face because of the power of the stories they tell? It probably is, but there's also a benefit to seeing them face-to-face as well. But I think I definitely think that having objective, systematic measures about how you obsess skill, for example, is very useful um, and a very useful way of, kind of puncturing the feelings you might have straight after a straight after meeting a manager. One of the things I often think about is that there's a great temptation when someone's met a manager to, to kind of write up their thoughts immediately after the meeting because it's fresh in, in the mind. But I generally think that's quite a bad idea because you tend to be captured by how that meeting made you feel, so the emotion of that meeting. So I think some kind of cooling off period is quite useful when you're less sensitive to how that meeting made you feel and you're probably more sensitive to some of the objective factors that, that you care about but you do too often even now when i attend a fund manager meeting it's kind of a a view when you leave that meeting like that was a good or bad meeting and that's really about affect it's all about how you feel about the meeting rather than was it objectively objectively good or bad what would you say are the main red flags that start ringing in your head when you are meeting a fund manager um i think for me Ego and humility are, are really important factors to consider. So, are they are they open to are they open to different or distinctive questions? Are they open to questions about things that have gone wrong? Are they are they clearly reflective? I think if there if there's a, a gap between their level of confidence in their own approach and their own process and what can realistically be expected from any active fund manager, that's a major warning sign. So, you know, so I suppose from a, let's think of it as a, as a disconnect between the outside view and an inside view. So the outside view is that, you know, the successful fund manager might have, depending on, I suppose, the asymmetry of their returns, like a 50% hit rate. You can often speak to a manager and it's very difficult for them to ever acknowledge ever getting anything wrong. So a disconnect between the inside view, what you see and what the story they tell you and what you know, the realities of, of investing on average. So any, any disconnect between that or between the realities of how difficult investing in is and how often things will, will go wrong or go awry is a, is a warning sign. Um, and sometimes you can just ask questions which they find difficult to answer, particularly about how, they've, how the process has evolved through time, how they've reflected on previous decisions. I find it very hard often to get people to be drawn into how they've reflected on their own process and how they've refined it through time. So a lot of it's with regard to ego or overconfidence and kind of a disconnect about the realities of how, how hard their job is. Could we broaden that question out a bit? So if we move away from the individual fund manager and move more to just generic funds, 
Well, what do you think a fund investor should be aware of or the red flags which you can kind of see in certain funds which you, you would say, no, that this is going to be a real issue for you? So I think at the top level, the, the easiest thing I would I would worry about is extremely strong performance. So if this performance is out of kilter with reasonable expectations for what a skillful manager might deliver, then I think the odds are heavily against you being successful. And that might be even if a manager has some level of investment skill. Um, so unusually high returns without any plausible justification as to why they're so high are a concern. But obviously people are generally drawn towards that. They'll be the manager with the narrative about how they're exceptionally skillful, how they've identified a new paradigm in markets that's leading to these types of returns. So people tend to be drawn towards the top performers and tend to disregard managers who have struggled. I think they should flip that on its head and look at the managers at the top of performance tables. You should be more concerned uh, than excited by that opportunity. It tends to kind of fall into high valuations, too many assets and the things we've talked about with staff fund managers, but I'd definitely be wary about overly strong performance and the, the, the trait in the active fund industry, which has been present throughout my career, and I think still happens quite a lot, of filtering a universe of funds just by screening on past performance is the worst, I think the worst possible way you can start looking for a fund. I'd, I'd rather, generally rather pick names out of a hat than look at what's performed well over the last three years. I'd like to delve into that in a, a bit more detail um, afterwards, but are, are there other kind of areas, whether you know, particularly the promise of the fund is maybe too complex or whether it's promising smooth performance um, in an unusual fashion, are, are those the sort of things which also be red flags for you? Yeah, absolutely. There's two two separate points here, but they're they're very related. One is um, smooth performance. People we all hate volatility, uncertainty, variability, so they tend to be drawn towards funds with with smooth performance. Um, and my view is we should never invest in a fund because it has smooth performance. We might want to invest in a fund that has smooth performance, but that shouldn't be the reason. And we see that in then people. Uh, often endowments talking about the performance of their uh, their private asset book, which have been incredibly immune to market drawdowns this year um, because stuff hasn't been marked. That's not economic diversification. It's just mark-to-model against mark-to-market pricing. Uh, so my view very much is that the premium for private equity is behavioural rather than a liquidity, liquidity premium. It's about you can't make stupid decisions, you can't get out, you can't experience the losses, or you don't experience as many losses because of the mark-to-model approach. So never investing in something or assume it's diversified because the price is smooth. We should be very wary of that. So again, another thing, if you see performance that is smooth, you should not feel comfortable with it. You should try to understand what's actually going on, on, on underneath the bonnet. And the related point is, is complexity. And complexity sells in the fund management industry because it's a competitive field. If you can create something that looks distinct, that other people can't replicate, that generates the types of returns that seem illogical, um, and people are drawn towards that and they're willing to pay up if they think something is complex, they don't understand and some kind of magic is happening in a in a fund. But it's, it's always dangerous, although it's appealing, it's always dangerous to invest in things you don't understand. Um, so complex funds, complexity added to leverage can often end badly. So I would guard investors against investing in things they don't understand why they can't understand why or how it generates returns in the way it does. We had Jake Taylor on this podcast and a topic that has come up a couple of times before is related to something that he was saying. He was saying that a lot of people study Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett and they want to have the 15% annual returns that they have delivered for many decades. 
But what those people don't understand is the amount of volatility that is inherent in those type of returns. And for many people, that volatility is too much to a stomach. And they might not have the correct mindset to go through those type of investments. And so the point that he was making is that for some people, that's not like trying to achieve the 15% annual return is not good. Maybe that person, for that specific person, a 10% is a better sort of return if it's if it comes with less volatility. So in your job um, of advising people on how to think about which managers to select, how do you go about making them understand sometimes that they might not be a 15% annual return sort of investor, but more of a 10% sort of investor? It's a really good question. And it's a really hard problem to solve because even if you talk about the realities of what might happen in the future with an investment, it's not the same as feeling it and experiencing it. Um, and what I find is there are lots of people investing in active strategies who are not willing to accept the, the behavioral realities of investing actively, which means you need to withstand kind of crunching periods of underperformance as, as the price of admission. And I talk in the book about, I think it was a paper by UBS where they looked at the Berkshire Hathaway returns over a long period of time and how, how often it outperformed the S&P 500, which is an imperfect measure. But um, I think the point is important that it outperformed on, say, three, uh, 60% of three-year periods. So 40% of the time over three-year periods, it was underperformed the S&P 500. Most fund investors have got a tolerance for underperformance of two or three years. So probably the greatest investor of his generation and most fund investors would have sacked him through a period when they generated incredibly strong returns. So if, if your time horizon for active funds is similar to the one at which you'd have sacked the best investor of his generation, it's probably wrong. Uh, and you're probably not going to find the best investor of their generation when you're making their investment. So there's a real, there's a real problem with that. So I think any investor in, in active funds, and active and passive is a spectrum, any investor taking active views needs to ask themselves, am I prepared to take the variability in returns that will come with this? Um, and that's the first question you should really ask yourself. And you need to be realistic about that because if you're not willing to do that, then there are kind of default passive options that you can close your eyes with in many cases and not have to suffer that that behavioral challenge. There are opportunities available for those willing to go through those difficult periods, but you need to go into it with your with your eyes open. I think one of the problems is that because people tend to invest in funds that have done well over the last three or five years and they might have consistent returns, they just extrapolate that. They don't think it's going to happen to them. They think, well, it's outperformed for the last three calendar years. I'm sure it'll continue outperforming. Well, we know that's that's just not going to happen. So you have this really painful cycle of you'll buy a fund after it's outperformed for three years, watch it mean revert and underperform for three years, then sell it and buy into another winner. And the cost of that is huge through time. You probably don't notice it because you probably feel good when you're ch changing your, your fund from the, the laggard to the, to the leader. But the com compound impact of that is huge. But... People have to be aware of the behavioural realities of the investment decisions they make. And they need to, whether it's a, a private investor or a professional investor, um, and professional investors are very guilty of this as well, of creating environments and frameworks that are not attuned to long-term investing. Which is a great segue into my next question. And it's about something that you cover in uh, great depth in your book and something that you have touched upon in your blog as well is that you've said, and you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that potentially the most important tool in anyone's investment toolkit is to have a long-term investment horizon. 
Could you please elaborate on that and why is that so important? I think that's undoubtedly the case. And it's one of those things that investing is incredibly difficult. Adding value is, is exceedingly challenging to do. But these, there's this, these glaring edges and advantages available to us that people can't take and they can't take them because of that. I suppose the, the institutional environment has been built up around investing, which is an increasing myopia and focus on short-term returns, looking at meaningless monthly or quarterly performance, which is just random random market noise and making decisions about short-term, short-term variations in, in performance. Um, and there's a huge cost to doing that. So the more frequently you check your portfolios, the more often you have committee meetings about, about your portfolios, the more often you read and write reports about short-term performance, the more likely you, to make, you are to make poor short-term decisions. Um, and what you should be doing is investing for the long-term, benefiting from the, the compound impact of long-term investment decisions and trying to leave it as uninterrupted as possible. But that's just not what happens at all. And actually, there's a major advantage for, for private investors over professional investors because to a large extent, they can make some sensible investment decisions and leave them. They might want to review it occasionally, might want to review it once a year, but professional investors as, as, as long-term investors yourself, you have to look at the markets every day, even if you don't want to, even if you know behaviourally it's not going to lead to better outcomes. You have to do it as part of your part of your job. And the whole industry now is is aligned with thinking and worrying about short-term performance and worrying about the, the career risk of bad short-term performance. So everyone's really focused on the short-term noise of markets when the real advantage to any investor is to make good long-term decisions and try and stick with them for, for the most part. What would be your recommendation for people to improve on that behavior, to have a, a long-term mindset? And what would long-term mean for, because that's a very subjective call for some people, might be five years, but for many others could be 10 or more. Well, I would like to say 10 years or more, but the amount of time that 10 years gets mentioned in my industry and job is close to zero. So I think five years is about the longest you can get away with. So as, as long as possible is the answer. And I think the thing is you need to try to create an environment that fosters long-term decision-making. So for, for private investors, things like just setting limits on how often you check your portfolio is really important. So you don't want to check it every day. You don't want to download the app where you can check your portfolio value every day. You probably want to forget your password. So make to add friction into your decision making for private investors. For professional investors, it's, it's really difficult, but you have to create, again, it goes back to beliefs about investing. You need people to sign up to what you believe about investing. And if you believe in a long-term investing approach, you need to define what that is and you need to take steps to improve it, to how you make decisions, the type of reporting you do, the type of numbers that you care about and the type of numbers that you don't care about. Um, and I think we should really put the burden of proof on those that are very keen on short-term performance numbers to evidence why that's important. What evidence is there that people can make good short-term investment decisions that they can call market directionality over the short-term and that it really matters. So I think probably the best way for, for long-term investors to try and stay in their seats and not make too many poor decisions is within any investment strategy or approach, think about what a reasonable range of outcomes is over any given time period. And that could be good or bad. So you can expect some level of variability, good or bad. And provided that the, the investment investments you made are within that region, then you should be comfortable with other things being equal. Um, and try and avoid a situation when every time there's a, an, under, an underperforming quarter, then you're, you're thinking about making changes or thinking about what's 
what's going wrong or does a process need to change um, because that, that's terribly destructive. But I think you have to try very hard to be a long-term investor and you have to make active steps to be a long-term investor. And that involves like behavioural costs of sitting through difficult periods of time and having difficult discussions with people who will be obsessing over, over short-term market noise. And that, that's not an easy thing to do. Something else that you have mentioned in the past, I think that you re very recently covered in one, in one of your um, blog posts, is the importance of having an unconstrained universe as much as possible, widening your opportunity set. But the world of investing over the course of the last, I would say, two or three years has moved into a place where more and more people get restricted. Why is that so dangerous and why is having an unconstrained mandate or a universe with a wide range of opportunities so important? I think there's, there's probably two types of two different types of constraints that we face as investors. Some are explicit constraints, which will be limits on position sizing or exposures or exclusions, and they're very formal constraints. And obviously when we when we apply constraints to an investable universe, then we reduce our expected return, otherwise they wouldn't be wouldn't be constraints. So we have those explicit constraints, but also we have implicit constraints as well. Like the things that we that we can't do that might be because of time horizons. It might be because of what people on people care about. So there might be limitations in our, in our behaviour because of what people think is an acceptable investment decision and what's not a, an acceptable investment decision. So the more we we constrain our behaviour, the more we constrain the investable universe. Then the less opportunity we have to to invest in the right areas and to make sensible investment decisions. Um, and I think we are, going back to the comment about long-term long -term investing, the, the inability to, to make long-term investment decisions is, a, is an implicit constraint that we all face because we're all focused too much on, on short-term short outcomes. And, and one of the concerns I have about the industry is that most of us with a career in it become overly focused on survival so can you survive in your job for the next six months one year three years rather than this long-term investment decision that i'm i'm trying to make so you make investment decisions that are incentivized in a different way where you're suffering from these quite significant constraints on your investment behavior um, because people are worried about about the short term um, which leads you to make suboptimal decisions so i think constraints just compromise your your investment decision making Uh, and the most dangerous ones are the kind of implicit, unspoken constraints about how you have to behave to manage career risk or to to keep your job or to uh, to locate people who are concerned about um, short-term movements in markets. You've spoken time and again about the the issue of you know, focusing on short-term performance, and that that's kind of an issue in this industry. And a lot of people will start their fund search just by looking at the most recent top performers, um, as you kind of mentioned before. If you don't think that's the most optimal way to identify good funds, what what alternative could you offer people um, to to that sort of process? As I said earlier, genuinely relative to picking out the list of the top performers, I genuinely pick them at random. I think that'd be better. But I think that there's a number of things that you can do. One, you can try and filter a universe based on other characteristics that you might find important. They might be things like manager tenure. It might be things like active share, there might be information about the style characteristics of a, of a portfolio. Um, so there are other softer factors that you can think about to, to define a universe in a different way. It might be the level of assets managed by, by a strategy. So anything that's not just leading you down the path of um, investing in 
yesterday's strongest performance funds, I think, is a is a benefit. And I'd also think about looking at the the bottom end of performance tables for managers that have struggled. So managers where you can ident- that you can identify that have got some type of investing skill, but have gone through a difficult period is probably the real sweet spot for for active investors um, because you get the, the the double benefit of a manager with a an edge and the potential mean reversion from a strategy that might be um, lowly valued because because it's underperformed. Um, the, the other approaches, which is a, a long and painful approach, but is, is open to um, perhaps institutional investors with, with time, is to, is to spend time meeting the people, um, looking at documentation, information, research, analysis on those strategies, and trying to narrow the universe based on the criteria that you think distinguishes skillful managers from, from those that, d- that don't have skill. That's not available to everyone. But if your only method, I think, of, of narrowing a universe is looking at the top performers or the most consistent performers, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. You, you, you touch on a mnemonic in the book called uh, Process. Um, very, very clever mnemonic there. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what you're trying to do there? And I, I think that probably touches on being able to try and identify some skill versus luck within that. Yeah, so uh, I tell a, a made-up story in the in the book about how we think about identifying skill and how generally speaking that we think about it in terms of outcomes and not process. So if outcomes are good, there must be skill involved in in that endeavor. And that's fine if you're playing in a in a game or involved in an activity um, where there's not much chance or randomness in the outcome. So if you're watching people two people play chess and someone wins ten times in a row, you can be probably pretty confident that that person has got more skill than the uh, the winner's got more skill than the loser, but in lots of fields when there's noise and randomness in in the outcomes, it can be incredibly misleading and people without skill will often look like they they do have skill and, and vice versa. So the example I, get, I give in the book is where we have, you're asked to judge whether two golfers have got any skill and they've got a 150-yard shot to the to the flag and all you see at first is is the outcome. So you, ju- you judge the outcome, you see both balls have landed by near the hole. So you think, well, both of these golfers must have skill because their outcomes are are good. But that's that's not all we, we need to know. We then need to know the path of the ball. So it's important to know how they, how they actually got there. So you see the path of one golfer and that's just straight, arrow straight at the flag. Another one veers left, hits a tree and then lands next to the hole. So I've got more information about the process, how we got to those results. Um, and now I think, well, one golfer who's, who skewed it left, uh, they haven't got any skill, they were just lucky. And the other golfer is skillful because they hit it straight in the flag. Um, and then you ask for another piece of information, you want to find out what their intention is. So you need to have an intentional link between process and outcomes. And you find out that the, the one golfer intended to aim it straight at the flag, and they did that. And the other golfer uh, intended to hit it left, bounce it off a tree and onto the onto the green. So now actually I think the golfer who skewed it left has got more skill because they were doing a more difficult thing. Uh, but I needed to know the path, I needed to know their, their intention um, as well. So you need to build up a picture of how an activity links to an outcome and you need to see this repeated through time to have any kind of hope of understanding whether there is skill involved or um, a greater chance than 50% that there's skill involved in, in an outcome. So if we think about assessing investors through that lens. You cannot judge whether an investor has skill just by looking at whether they underperformed or or outperformed. You need to understand what their beliefs are, what they believe about investing and how they think they can add value. You need to 
understand what their process is, so what steps they go through to try and deliver some kind of outperformance or alpha. And then you want to see that reflected in, in outcomes. And that might not necessarily be, well, it won't be short-term performance, but it will be about um, what they're trying to, to achieve. So if they're investing in lowly value companies and they want to invest in companies on low multiples that um, that mean revert and there's a revaluation in those companies, you want to see that behavior in the uh, decisions that they make and in the outcomes they generate. And only by linking the process and the outcome can you have any hope of, of identifying skill. But I would caveat that by saying that there is still loads of noise in investing. So there's no perfect way of doing this. But if you're just looking at outcomes, then really you're just looking at a, a set of, of random outcomes that might be due to luck or might be due to skill. Um, yeah, as far as golf's concerned, I definitely sound like the second golfer there, that's for sure. Um, I, I think we're on to our signature, signature questions now. So, um, Joe, I hope you've been making some mistakes uh, since the last podcast. What's the uh, the biggest mistake you've made which is down to process rather than outcome? So I recently uh, transferred my pensions because I've worked in a few different places in my career. I've got a, a few uh, pensions in different places. So I um, wanted to consolidate those into into one pension to try and reduce the paperwork and um, the complexity of my pension arrangements. And they're all pretty much invested fully in, in equity markets. Uh, I've probably got, what, 20 years or so to retirement. So I thought it's a sensible approach to invest in equities over that time. So when I transferred them across, um, they came across in cash. So it sells all of your fund holdings as they were and they come across the the new pension provider in cash and obviously the, the the rational sensible thing to do would be just to invest them straight away back to how they um how they were positioned before because it's only because i'm transferring the pensions and doing this administration that they're they're sitting in cash but i couldn't overcome this this overwhelming feeling that well equity markets this is what six months ago um equity markets are expensive interest rates are rising inflation is a problem, everyone's going into recession. It felt like a terrible time to be investing in equity markets. But the flip side of that is I know that I have no ability whatsoever in timing markets. I have no skill in that. I don't think anyone does, but I certainly have no skill in timing markets. But still, I, despite uh, trying to understand investor behaviour and the mistakes we make, I still just couldn't resist the urge not to reinvest the money straight away, which would have been the, the rational thing to do. Um, which I think just goes to show that it doesn't matter how much you you study it. Um, when you go through it and when you feel it, then you tend to make similar mistakes. And I think the, the way to avoid these types of things is to try and systematise these decisions as much as possible and, and take it out of your, your hands. Otherwise, you'll be dominated by how you feel at the time uh, rather than any kind of rational, sensible thought. Well, very much hope the, the outcome's good on, on that side. Um, other than the intelligent fund investor, are there any books that you've uh, got to recommend to us? So I've just started reading a book called Expected Goals by Rory Smith. Rory Smith, I think, is the football correspondent at the New York Times. Um, and this is about the development and increasing use of data and analytics in football. Um, so a football version of, of Moneyball to a, to a certain extent. And th this is... I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, one is because I think we're in investing, we're probably some way behind even football in the use of data analytics in, in assessing decision-making. Um, we're making some progress, but probably not as, as far as, as we should be given the, the data that is available to us. There's also an interesting um, 
historical context in the book about how when data was first used to assess um, football players and effective strategies that they drew the wrong conclusions. So you ended up with the first data in football being used in essence just to take a very direct approach to get the um, the ball to the point of maximum opportunity, which is very close to the goal. So it led to lots of long ball uh, and direct football styles, which has um, not been proven to be the, the main lesson from, from data about football and decision making since then. Um, the other thing I was reflecting on is how similar is is investing as a um, as a problem to be solved by or improved with data and analytics as as football um, football might be, and I think there there's scope for improvement in terms of how much we understand what works and what doesn't in both. But I think the big difference um, with investing is it's just far noisier. So there's there's noise and luck in in football, um, but it tends to be dominated by by skill um, and sample for football. Um, much more discreet and works over much shorter time horizons as well. Whereas if you're if you're a long-term investor, it will take a long time to build up a good data set of the quality of your of your decisions through time. And there'll still be a lot of noise in that data set. So investing is probably one of the only tasks that combines luck or skill when you can make what look like and which are sensible decisions for a long period of time and the outcomes won't look great. Um, so there, there is always a limit to how much data and analytics can help us improve our decision making. But there's certainly certainly scope, um, as there was in football, for for more analysis of how we make decisions and what's effective and what's not. Yeah, I, I would just add because you you got me onto this book that hitting against the spin is effectively the cricket version of of the book you've been talking about. Um, I very much enjoyed that and and similar sort of conclusions as relates to investment. So thank you for putting me on to that book. Yeah, Hitting Against the Spin is a great book for for cricket fans specifically, but there's also really good insights about how you how you assess behaviour and decisions um, and, and outcomes and process in that book as well. Joe, thank you very much for coming back to the Value Perspective podcast and best of luck with your new book. Um, it's going to be a blast. Thank you for having me for a third time. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.